Well, happy spring break to everyone. I know uh, a lot of our schools went on break, I guess officially starting tomorrow, but you know, you, you start celebrating like five or six days ahead of time. But with, with spring, spring break upon us, what that means is that Easter is right around the corner. And that means two things. Number one, it's my favorite day of the year. It's the day that we set aside to intentionally celebrate uh, the resurrection of our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. But number two is it presents another opportunity for me to impose my dad tax on my kids' candy. And so uh, how many of you guys, you, you do Easter baskets for your kids, right? They do the little hunt with the bunnies, all that good stuff. Yeah. And, and so one of my favorite things is to, whenever my kids get candy, I impose the dad tax. And what the dad tax is, is I got to make sure that you don't have anything poisonous in here. And really, is it's just me lying to my kids to pick out the candy that I want before they eat it. And Easter presents the scientifically proven, the best form of the Reese's peanut butter cup comes into circulation, which is the egg, Right. Now, if you're a fan of Reese's, you know this to be true. The proportions are adequate. Every single bite is the same. It's never too much chocolate, never too much peanut butter. Now, there are some people who would argue with that and say the best candy that you can find around Easter is a Cadbury egg, one of these things. How many of you guys enjoy the Cadbury egg? Show of hands. Uh, we just need to know who to pray for after service uh, because the devil has bewitched you. Uh, my wife loves these things, and I think they are absolutely absolutely disgusting. Like I see these things and you take a bite, it kind of looks like an egg and it's just like, this is just so, so nasty. But I guarantee you that nobody likes Cadbury eggs as much as this man uh, from England. I read this article recently, true story, um, that, that the guy in England is obsessed with these eggs and so he decided to pull a heist for them. And so he, in order to do this, he wanted to have his entire trailer full and so before he could do that, he had to steal a semi. So get this, a guy breaks into a industrial park to steal a semi-truck and then breaks into the factory of the Canterbury eggs and makes off with 40,000 pounds of these bad boys. And then as he's driving down the road, he's throwing them out the window at people claiming to be the Easter Bunny. And then the police finally catch up to him and they, they pull him over and the guy just straight up admits it. He stole almost $50,000 in Canterbury eggs. This is absolutely mind-blowing, but he was apprehended because he was caught red-handed. Now, here's the thing. As is, is, is I have been caught red-handed in certain things in my life, and I'm sure we could all share stories of the time where we did something we know we shouldn't have, and then we got caught. And one of the biggest lessons we need to learn throughout life is how do we respond when we are caught? What do we do with the wrongs, and, and not just when we know them, but when other people also find out to them? How do we behave? How do we respond to the sin, the wrongdoing in our life? You see, the difference between somebody who lives in the kingdom of God as a disciple of Jesus versus somebody who doesn't claim to maybe be a Christian is not, contrary to, to, to popular uh, misunderstanding, the difference is not that, well, Christians, they never do anything wrong. Right? We all know full well that Christians mess up a lot. We sin sometimes just as much, if not more so, than the average person, unfortunately. That's not to say we should live a life of sin or not pursue righteousness, but the difference ought to be not, well, have you lived a life uh, that hasn't, you haven't sinned? The difference needs to be, how do we respond to our sin? 
Or how should we respond to the wrongs in our life, whether we are caught red-handed or not? And that's kind of our tension for today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. We've been in this series studying the life of David. We're going to be in this series leading up to Easter. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you can stop by Guest Central after service. They would love to give one to you as our way of saying thanks for being here. Uh, Also, if you're a sermon note taker, you'll notice the notes are blank. That's just space for you to write down whatever the Spirit leads, guides. We'll put up a couple things on the screen here. The last couple weeks, though, we've seen this man by the name of David. When he was a young boy, he was anointed to be king over Israel because something different about his heart, his disposition towards God. Then that same young boy who was a shepherd, through faith, conquered a giant by the name of Goliath. The story David and Goliath, that's where it comes from. And then last week, we saw the other king, the king who was currently sitting on the throne of Israel, King Saul began to be filled with pride and jealousy and how that was going to kind of go towards David. And so David finds himself on the run yet again. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to start here in verse uh, 1 this morning through verse 6. You can follow along with me here today. It says, so David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, what are, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. David is completely just lying straight up to a priest here at this moment. As for my men, again, David is alone at this point. I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread, or your translation might say common bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, or the bread of presence, or your uh, version might say the show bread, provided the men have kept themselves from women. And David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us uh, as usual whenever I see Set out. The men's bodies are holy on missions uh, and that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from, the, from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken away. Here's David. He's on the run. He flees to the sanctuary to find sanctuary, if you will, but he makes a wrong turn in the process. And so you imagine how David kind of enters in, knowing his back is against the wall. He's got to try to figure out. He's hungry. He's famished. He hasn't had maybe anything to, uh, to eat or drink in some time. So he maybe saunters in. And he's, oh, so he comes in. Maybe he's panting. He's like, oh, uh, good priest, rabbi, uh, pastor, reverend, sir. It's so good to see you. Oh, man, do you have anything to eat? For me and my men, we are just starving. We've been out on this important mission from King Saul. What can you give to us? And it says Ahimelech kind of questions him. Wait, you're on a mission? You're all alone? You're saying you have men with you, but you're, you're here in my presence? Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. They're coming. I, you know, yeah, I'm, I kind of ventured off in front of them. So tell me, do you have any bread on hand that I can use to feed myself and my men? He's kind of just flat out lying to a priest here in this moment. And the priest turns to him and says, I have no basic bread. I have no wonder bread on hand for you to eat. But I do have what he calls the show bread. And this is super interesting. 
The showbread was these 12 loaves of bread that the temples would have, the sanctuaries would have, because uh, periodically the priests would take these uh, loaves of bread and they would go eat in the presence of God. It was sacred bread, it was holy bread. And they would go and they would sit in the presence of God and have what is called table fellowship with the Lord. To have table fellowship back then meant that you approved of somebody's life and choices they were making. So that's what this bread was for. The priests would cleanse themselves ritually. They would take the 12 loaves, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, go into the holy place, sit down, dine with God as a symbol of we are restoring our relationship and peace. And so Ahimelech says, I don't have any basic bread. This ain't Olive Garden where we're just tossing out breadsticks to you, but I have some of this fancy bread, this holy bread. And so if you and your men have kept yourself at least somewhat ritually clean, go ahead and take it. And David says, absolutely, we, we, have, we have done that. We will take this bread on. Now, it's at this point, some scholars, some people like to say, well, well, aha, see, Ahimelech, he was a wicked priest. Why would you ever give something that is holy and this tradition over to someone else that this wasn't what it was supposed to be used for? But the interesting thing is, if you fast forward a couple thousand years to the life of Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 2, Jesus uses this exact incident to describe how in the kingdom of God, people are always more important than religious customs or duties. Jesus points to this moment and to say what Ahimelech did was okay because he was honoring and taking care of the needs of others more than anything else. That's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is we see something interesting about David for the first time. His life and character is a little bit wonky. Up until this point, he's been been the banner model citizen of what it means, what it looks like to follow God with our hearts, our actions, our decisions. But now, instead of letting God fight his battles, instead of saying, I will let my Lord settle the score for me, he starts to take matters into his own hands by deceiving other people. Story continues, verse 7 through 9 here. This is where it gets good. It says, so now one of Saul's servants was there that day. Detained before the Lord was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought in my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. The priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you are writing in your Bible, highlight, circle, underline that phrase, behind the ephod, because it's an important facet of information. If you want it, take it, for there is no other sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give me that sword. So here's David, and he's putting on this show, right? straight up lying to, to this priest by the name of Ahimelech, and we find out that there's a man there by the name of Doeg. And Doeg is a chief shepherd of Saul. We're going to find out more about him, but this word chief oftentimes refers to as the top or most important, but sometimes it can also mean somebody who is violent or rudderless. And so you'll need to remember that because he's going to come back around for that purpose there. But at this point, David has now deceived Ahimelech three times. He's told three half-baked lies. He says, I'm on a mission from Saul, which he wasn't. He says, well, I've got these men with me. He's all alone. And then at the same time, too, he says, the mission was so urgent. I had to leave so quickly that I couldn't take a sword with me. And Amalek doesn't question it. 
And Lamech doesn't, doesn't ask any follow-ups. He just says, okay, well, yeah, you seem to be reputable. You seem to, to, to be somebody who knows. We've heard the stories about, about your, your success. So, so, yeah, go ahead and take it. It is there behind the ephod. Whenever Scripture gives you detail, pay close attention. Scripture doesn't give you the height and the weight and the stats about every single person. So whenever Scripture tells you that this person was particularly tall, this person was particularly short, this person was particularly handsome or beautiful, take certain note to it. And then when Scripture provides details that seem kind of meaningless, pay attention. And so instead of, instead of it just saying, so grab the sword, you have the sword of Goliath, say, grab the sword that is behind the ephod. And I know what you're thinking. What in the world is an ephod? An ephod was an article of clothing, if you will, that the priests would put on to show that they were set apart for service to God. It was like an apron or or a breastplate and oftentimes had 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then with it, oftentimes came these things called lots. They were kind of like the ancient Israelite version of, of dice. And so, so basically what would happen is in certain towns, in certain places, if people had a dispute and they couldn't arrive at a solution together, they would call the priest. They would say, hey, priest, can you come on down here, bring the ephod, because we need to know God's will. And so he would put on the ephod to show that, that, that he was set apart to discern God's will. He was set apart to serve the Lord. He would hear the dispute, and then he would take out the lots. He would cast them, and then however those lots fell, that would mean this is what the Lord's will is. And so the narrator of 1 Samuel is saying something important. Here's David, a man after God's own heart, anointed king of Israel, on the run, deceiving for the first time. And he tells this lie to say, I need a sword. Up until this point, David's weapon has not actually been a weapon. David's weapon has been faith in the power of the living God. And for the first time, he wants to take matters into his own hands. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath is here. It's behind the ephod. It's yours if you want it. So as David then makes his way to the back of the sanctuary, he's going to take aside this apron, this breastplate, this ephod to grab the sword. He's going to literally touch with his hands the thing that symbolizes somebody who was set apart for God's service just like he was. To grab hold of a sword that was won not because of his own strength, not because of his own cunningness or courage, but because he had faith in God. God. The narrator is making a huge point. David looks past the article of someone dedicated to God, reaches for the sword of Goliath, which represents the faith that David had in God. And as David holds this sword in his hands, he ought to have remembered the faith that won it in the first place. He ought to have not set aside the thing that says, you too, David, are set apart for service to me. The sword was not won because of half-baked truths. The sword was not won because he happened to be a little bit more clever. The sword was won because of a bold trust and faith in the living God. And he has now pushed that aside to take matters into his own hands. And he gets away with it. Just because we get away with something 
doesn't mean we should do it, right? True or false? I'll give you a story. Uh, uh, one of my part-time jobs in high school was to, uh, I was a, a frozen yogurt chef. That's what we referred to ourselves. I worked at a frozen yogurt store. And uh, there was somebody who was a couple years older than me. They were kind of giving me the ropes of, okay, here's how you make the yogurt, and here's how you get that perfect swirl with the little loop on top. Trust me, there's an art form to this, people. Years of practice. Here's how you, you stock the, the toppings, and here's how much to do, and all this type of stuff. And then, and then the, the person who was training me then, then added this little tidbit that I didn't ask for that they probably should not have said. He said, now let me teach you how to up your tip throughout the day. And I said, okay, this sounds pretty good. Do you like smile extra big or something, you know, or, or, or I don't know, what you, what's the plan here? When, when, when somebody comes in, do you give them a wink and give them an extra scoop uh, of Oreos on top? I don't know. And the guy said to me, he goes, so here's what happens is, is we know the prices and if someone comes in, oftentimes people will, will just, hey, here's a five, take the change. And I kid you not, this is a true story. And he, and he says, okay, so if somebody comes in and orders a medium, what you should do first is just say, hey, a medium's going to be 350 and then uh, go start making it first. And so then as you're making it, and then if they hand you a $5 bill and say, hey, keep the change, then you go back to the register, you ring it up as a small, take out that extra 50 cents and put it into the tip jar. And I was like, man, this is astute. You have thought this through. And his whole justification he gave me was it's not like you're stealing because you're still giving money to the business. The difference between a small and medium is so small, it's so insignificant, it's maybe a couple cents. It's not really going to hurt anybody. And besides, we work really hard. We should get paid a little bit more. Now I'll let you fill in whether I did that or not throughout my time there. Just because we can get away with it doesn't mean we should do it. So here's David. He's testing the waters, and he hasn't been burned quite yet, but he's already starting to deviate from his faith that once was. It's kind of my point this, one of my points for this morning is that faith that once was means nothing if it's not working now. It doesn't mean anything that, that David was anointed king. It doesn't mean anything that, that he at one point had slayed Goliath. Faith is not this thing where, where you build up kind of uh, 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 an account of good works. It's not something where, where you get to kind of amount uh, some extra credit, if you will, and then if you want to do something wrong or bad or make a poor choice, you get to say, but I got some extra credits over here, so, so the scales are still tipped in my favor. You see, a faith that once was means nothing if it's not working now. And the same applies for us today. Well, I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible. I, 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 I used to follow Jesus. A faith that once was means nothing if it's not working now. And just because he got away with it doesn't mean that God approved of it. So here's David. He's got some loaves of bread, the sword of Goliath. He flees to the place called Gath. And if you've been following along on our series, Gath is the home place of Goliath. So he left Israel. He left the synagogue and the temple to go to the place where the giant was from. They find out kind of who he is, and he has to pretend to be insane in order to, to escape. So then he flees even further away to a cave. And at this point, Saul has gotten uh, a, a word that, that, that David has fled yet again. 
and pursues him all the more. So skip with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's picking up in verse 9. So here's David. He's hiding out in a cave of all places because he's running from Saul, probably thinking he's gotten away with it. And yet Saul is able to track him down. Picking up in verse 9. It says, but Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse uh, come to Ahimelech, the son of Atub at Nob. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and all the priests of his family who were at the priest of Nob, and they came to the king. And Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, of all your servants is as loyal as David and the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and the highly respected in your house. Is he not worthy? Was the day the first time that I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family. For your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew that he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were were unwilling to raise a hand to strike down the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, your turn, strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod along with the women and children. David has fled a long ways. He's deceived. And now as a result of this, it's compounded in the situation that Saul is beginning to lose his mind all the more. And now an entire lineage of people have lost their lives. Let me show you how far that David has actually fled at this point. Let me, let me kind of draw it out for you. Here's a map uh, of ancient Israel back t- there during the time of David. Here is Jerusalem right here. This is where Jerusalem is, this little dot right here. And that's where David's supposed to be. That's where the king of Israel's supposed to be. And then it says he goes to Nob, which is right about in this area. So he doesn't go too far. Sorry, that's, that's Ramah, his first spot. And then he goes down to Nob, which is over here in this area. And then it says he, he doesn't have solace there at that sanctuary, so he goes to Gath. So he crosses enemy borders and goes to the area of Gath. And then after he has to pretend to be insane at Gath, he goes to this cave over here. And this is where he's hiding out in the cave. And eventually, where David's going to end up is all the way on the other side of the Dead Sea. This is where he's supposed to be. This is where his God, his Lord, his Savior, his King has told him, this is where you reign because of your faith in me. And he has ventured so far away from where he is supposed to be. Because he is no longer relying on faith. He is choosing to fight battles for himself. And so Saul pursues him. At one point, Saul says to the other soldiers, he says, hey, obviously David can't bribe you, so so what about me? I can offer you anything you want, and nobody takes the bait again. And so then he turns to Doeg. He says, time to play bounty hunter. So Doeg becomes Doeg the bounty hunter, right? Okay, I thought that was good. 
And he goes to slaughter 85 priests and the women and the children. One priest survives, makes his way to David. The question is, who's to blame here? Is it Saul for calling in the orders? Is it Doeg, the bounty hunter, for actually doing it and going through with it? Is it David for his deception that's kind of led to this point? And the answer is, well, yes to all three. I'm not trying to say that that some half-baked truths is on the same par in gravity as assassinating an entire group of people. But I think it does speak to the fact that all sin is serious. That all sin has consequences. We can put it this way. Is that, that all sin has rippling effects throughout our life. No matter how big or how small, all sin has rippling effects in our life. I don't know if you've ever uh, skipped rocks before, but there's kind of uh, two ideal things you need to skip a good rock. Number one is you need a good skipping rock, which means it needs to be fairly flat. Uh, uh, and then at the same time, too, the second thing you need is to have a very still water. And if you skip rocks before, you, 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 you kind of search out the rocks, and, and, and you don't want one that's maybe too small, and you definitely don't want one that's too big, but you pick it up, and then if the water is still, that's ideal conditions. And you kind of wind back, and you do that sidearm motion, and you let it fling, and you watch it. But if you skip rocks when the water is still, no matter how, how big or how small the rock you chose is, what you will notice is the rippling effects will cross the entire lake. It doesn't matter that the rock is small. It doesn't matter that the rock is big. All sin has rippling effects. There are no loopholes when it comes to our sin. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. But all sin then puts into to motion a debt that needs to be paid. And one of the beautiful things I, I see in this, this passage and this story is that despite his countless sin, God never strikes down Saul and kicks him out of the kingdom. And despite David's chink in his armor, despite David's deceit, he doesn't remove the throne or the call to belong to his people. But the question is, though, to me, if there's blood on both their hands, what's the difference? Why is David referred to as a man after God's own heart? This is a name given to him after everything that he's done, and it's going to get a lot worse. Trust me, come back the next two weeks. If you want to see all hell break loose in someone's life, come back next week. What's the difference between a man after God's own heart or, or, or a woman after God's own heart, somebody following after God versus somebody that, that God just writes off completely? It's not the fact that they sin or not. It's not the fact that they were caught red-handed. It's how they respond to their sin. Here's where we're going to conclude our story this morning. Chapter 22, verses uh, 20 through 23. It says this. It says, but one son of Ahimelech, uh, a son of Atub, named Abathar, escaped and fled to join David. So one of the priests gets away. And he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite, the bounty hunter, was there, I knew he would, not, or I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me 
don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too, for you will be safe with me. Up until this point, if I said, what's the difference between Saul and David? It would have been really, really easy to draw those distinctions. One is jealous, full of pride. The other is full of humility. One seeks to serve himself. The other seeks to serve God. One uses the kingdom for his own gain. The other seeks to use the kingdom for the glory of God. But not so much. The lines are slowly becoming blurred. The difference between Saul being labeled as a poor king cast out of the throne versus David who next week we're going to see is going to mess up way worse than Saul ever could imagine. A man after God's own heart. The difference is one word. It's repentance. The difference between Saul and David was not whether or not did they do wrong. The difference between us and Saul is not whether or not do we have blood on our hands. The difference is do we repent and respond to our sin or not. I'm not on social media a lot, but this week as I was preparing for this message, I came across this picture that, uh, that I just think it kind of, kind of, I don't know, gives us a good idea of, I think, the way that David handled it. So here it is. It's called Accountability 101. Here's a broken egg. One person says, well, I, I, I meant well. I, I didn't mean to crack the egg. Well, well, that was not my intent. The true answer is I broke the egg. The difference between Saul and David is Saul said, it meant, well, I didn't mean it. I made a poor choice. I was full of anger and I didn't think right. Sorry, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, if I could go back in time, I would probably do it differently. David stands up and just says, the death of those priests are my responsibility. There's an accountability to his sin. David's light bulb moment was he needed to let go of the sword of Goliath and realize he needed to have faith again that allowed him to gain it in the first place. Here's my, my, my kind of main point for this morning. Is that when it comes to living in the kingdom of God, what matters most is how we respond to our sin. What's the difference between Saul and David? What we're going to see is how they responded to their sin. What's the difference between Christian and non-Christian? How have you responded to your sin? The difference is not have you sinned or not? Have you led a perfect life or not? Are you holier than thou or not? That's not the difference. The difference is in the kingdom of God, we respond to our sin significantly different than somebody who is not. We don't just say sorrow. We don't just feel remorse. We pursue repentance above all all things. The difference between Saul and David and Doeg was one thing and one thing only. David repents. The others do not. So I think what this story does is it urges us all to consider the same in our own hearts and lives. How do we respond to our sin? How do you respond to your sin in your life? We all act like Saul from some time or another, do we not? We justify it. We explain it. Sometimes we go as far as to compare it. Well, I haven't sinned as much as he has or she has, so what's the big deal? But we're all called to do is to, to act like David did in this moment. Regardless if it's a small rock or a big one, we are all called to repentance. And repentance is so much more than just saying sorry. Repentance is so much more than just saying, well, I didn't really mean it like that. 
The word repent in Scripture means to change, to do a 180, an about face. It was oftentimes a military term used when you wanted to change the entire direction of an army. You would call them to repent, which means they would be going in one direction. They would yell out the word repent. They would about face, go the other way. And that's the same with our relationship with sin, is we ought to repent from our sin, not just say, oops, my bad. We should seek to be changed away from it and live a life in the other direction. So do we have the same habits of David in our life or not? It would be foolish, it would be kind of dumb of me to stand up here and to say, to live in the kingdom of God, don't sin. You got it? You good with that? Y'all gonna, you, can, you can all accomplish that? Next week, if you haven't sinned, just you all worship together. There would be nobody here. And the people that would be here shouldn't be here because they're lying. <laughs> in the kingdom of God, we are called to about face. We are called to pursue repentance to God. And the beautiful thing about it, as 1 John tells us, is that when we confess, God is faithful to forgive us. How do you respond when you're caught red-handed? How do you respond to your sin. That does not mean that God makes the ripples go away. That does not mean consequences won't come when we do make mistakes. But if we are faithful to repent from our sin, God is faithful to not meet us with shame or abandonment. He meets us with his mercy and his grace. So hopefully the challenge from this story this morning is not to shame or condemn you, is rather to offer you hope and freedom. That when we repent, the blood of Jesus gives us new life. Think about how different your life might be if you had a a habit of repentance. Think about how different your relationships with a spouse or a child or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor might be if we had a habit of repentance. Think about how different our communities, our groups, our cohorts, uh, everywhere that we lived and went would be different if we had a habit of repentance. That when we made mistakes, we owned it. We took uh, uh, responsibility for it, but then we made sure, as best we can, to walk in the other direction. So I close with this, is that for some of you, I want to offer you the first chance to repent to Jesus. You might have gone your entire life and you've never handed your sin over to Jesus as your king. And you have the opportunity to do so today. Free of charge. Doesn't require anything but the willingness to submit to him. Others of us, we need to stop saying sorry and we need to learn to actually repent. Saying sorry over and over and over again gets old. And oftentimes, if we have created rippling effects in the lives of those around us, what they don't want to hear again is sorry. What they want to see is repentance. What they want to see is a changed person so that those rippling effects stop. But each and every one of us, we need to remember that God is good. That every time we approach the throne, he is just, he is faithful to meet you and I with grace and mercy. Let's pray as we continue to worship this morning. Lord, we pause to reflect. We pause to offer up this time and this prayer 
For some of us, it might be an opportunity for us to repent for the first time before you. It might be a chance for someone to say, I too am a sinner in need of your grace. Lord, I repent for my sin and I seek and I hope and I desire to live a life after you. For others of us, we don't have a habit of repentance. We might not even have a habit of saying sorry, Lord. And so from that, we repent. We repent from not repenting. That's even possible. We do it this morning, Lord. Because we don't want to be fools. We don't want to be people going further and further and further away from your kingdom. We want to be grounded in your goodness, in your grace, in your presence, in your mercy. And we praise you, God. I thank you, Lord, that that you meet me every single time that I wake up to the reality of my sin. It is not met with shame, but is met with the blood of Christ. That you offer chance after chance after chance to meet you, to live with you, to commune with you. I thank you for your justice, that you do not overlook sin, but I thank you all the more for your mercy and love, embodied through your Son, Jesus. That is why we sing, that is why we we worship, that is why we preach sermons, that is why we take communion, we give, we serve, Because, Lord, you have called us to live a new way of life. That repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is an amazing thing that you have gifted to those in your kingdom. May we have that habit to live in your grace and in your mercy. It's your name that we pray. Amen.